0: Good morning, I think I would be remiss if I didn't start by saying thank you to this congregation for all the hospitality they've extended to us, I know I speak on behalf of my family for certain and I'm confident on many other families when I say that, thank you for your work and for your hospitality, I know it's been, it's been encouraging and fine to me and I hope this lesson does the same for you all. The topic that I have been assigned is entitled Spiritual Masks. And it's really a continuation um, of the subject that Brother Dan introduced for us a few moments ago regarding our relationships to those in the world. And Dan, this is this is gonna make you feel a little better. Um, I, I told my wife, when I told my wife what, what my, my topic was and that it had to do with relationships and friendships, I, I'm pretty sure her immediate and visceral response was, oh, That's a terrible topic for you. And so once I swept up the pieces of my shattered confidence and dignity, and I somehow summoned the the inner strength or maybe the the stupidity to ask, Why is that, dear? She, She proceeded to inform me ever so gently and tactfully that, Honey, you're just not that friendly. I struggle with the same things you do. You're just not that friendly. So needless to say, there's at least one audience member this morning that was rather relieved to to hear that Dan would be covering the the half of the topic that he did. Um, But hopefully our thoughts, you find them to be compatible and not contradictory, um, because apparently I don't know the first thing about building friendships. But in all seriousness, I I do want to thank Brother Dan for his encouragement and his exhortation this morning. I, I, As much as I hate to admit it, there is a lot of truth in what my wife says about me and her observations, and it, it certainly challenged me to consider and reflect on how I do present myself, and interact with those in the world, how effective am I really being at fostering effective and fruitful relationships in which the gospel can be shared, and how my daily life either helps or hinders that process. As was clear from Dan's remarks and is. From our own personal experiences, I'm sure, relationships with those in the world in some form or fashion are not only an in inevitability, but they are a necessity if we are going to take seriously our responsibility as servants and workers in Christ's kingdom. We've kind of touched on this already, but when we obey the gospel, we're not called out or set apart into the isolation of a secluded and remote monastery into a spiritually sterile environment that's devoid of all worldly influences. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 that if we're trying to find such an environment, he says you're going to have to go out of the world completely. And as we see from Christ's remarks in John chapter 17, verse 15 that we already touched on, that is not our Lord's desire and intention for His disciples. He says there, I do, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Attempting or expecting to live a life of service to God without engaging with the world would not only be naive, but it would be a clear dereliction of duty, and it would be unprofitable to all involved. And I believe Dan's lesson highlighted that fact very well. However, and it is a big however, however, As believers, it would be equally negligent and naive to assume that there were no limits, there were no limitations, that there were no potential dangers associated with our relationships with those in the world. That's really the essence of my topic this morning, the potential complexities and dangers that our relationships with those in the world hold it it occurred to me as i was wrestling with this topic of spiritual mask and how i was gonna apply it and work it in that over the last three or four years with with all we've been through with the pandemic mask is probably a word that we've heard more often than we'd like to 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 hear it's become something that we've become much more familiar than we ever thought we would or would would like to have been over those the recent past years, many of us have become accustomed, encouraged, sometimes mandated, to wear a mask in public. To keep our distances for the safety of our well-being and those that are vulnerable. The protection against a highly contagious virus and one that did prove fatal in many instances. As I I thought about those unique experiences, I did wonder how much importance, urgency, and concern that we put upon our own spiritual well-being. Unfortunately, I I think that oftentimes there's less of an urgency and discretion when it comes to our own spiritual exposure. It's far too easy to carelessly expose ourselves and allow the world unfettered and unfiltered access. And when we do this, we will compromise our spiritual immune system and become infected with the very same disease that we're trying to help others overcome. To use another analogy, you don't go down into the mine without personal protective equipment and expect to be a miner very long. It's important work, but it's dangerous work and you got to protect yourself against it. We cannot be naive to that. The dangers are real, and therefore the need for spiritual protection is real. If we would have continued reading in the, the 15th verse of John chapter 19 a moment ago, we would have seen that Christ, with the very same breath, underscored that fact. We already we already read this, this passage once, but let me reread that, that passage again in its entirety. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That Greek word for keep means to watch over, to guard. Some of you may have translations that read something along the lines of to protect them from, to keep them safe from, to keep them away from the evil one. Why else would our Savior in his final hours on this earth pray for us and petition the Father to protect them in this world if there were not in it very real and present dangers? Just as it would be reckless and destructive both to ourselves and to others to ignore our obligation to treat our friends and neighbors with genuine love and concern and compassion, to share with them and to do good as we are able. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, to live peaceably with them as much as lies within us. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to preach the gospel to them both by word and example. It would be equally reckless and destructive both to ourselves and to them, to extend them unbridled and unfettered acceptance, affection, and access to our hearts and to our minds and to our lives, to place no boundaries on our interactions, to assume the same communion and fellowship as we do our brethren in Christ. While we may have very much in common with and relate well to our neighbors, our workers, our acquaintances, our friends, even our family members in this world. We might find their personalities to be engaging and endearing and compatible with our own. We might share unique and similar life experiences and hobbies and interests. We may even champion some of the very same causes and espouse some of the very same moral standards and values. Those things all might be true and they all often are true but if our neighbors and co-workers and acquaintances and friends and yes even our family members who have not obeyed the gospel and all that that entails then there are some critical and fundamental things that we do not share we do not share the same nature we do not share the same spirit we do not share the same father and authority figure and leader we do not share the same priorities we do not share the same purpose or goals, or direction. And while this may sound cruel and harsh and judgmental, especially in today's cultural climate, I assure you that my motivation for making such statements and observations is not a desire to be unduly exclusive. It's not hatred or bigotry or fear or phobia of those who are different than myself. My motivation for making such statements as observation is from a sincere love and a desire for protection, a desire for protection of all that are involved, all that are involved. Scripture reveals that when all of the world's superficial trappings are stripped away and removed, the lives of believers are fundamentally incompatible and incongruent with those of believers. What Paul—that's why Paul commands in the Corinthian brothers, brother in Second Corinthians, chapter six, verses fourteen through eighteen—do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're not pulling in the same direction. We don't take the time to read it, but the contrast that Paul draws on in that passage to describe the bond, the union, or the lack thereof between believers and unbelievers, are decisive. They are definitive. There's not a lot of room there for nuance or compromise. It's righteousness versus lawlessness. It's light versus darkness. It's Christ versus Belial. It's the temple of God versus that of idols. And so the conclusion that he makes there, the the exhortation he makes there after he gets through listing those contrasts is to say in verse 17, "...therefore..." Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Everyone must make a decision on where their affection and allegiance lies. But it cannot be with Christ and the world at the same time. Christ himself says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The two positions are mutually exclusive. It's an either-or. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James uses some equally stark and strong language that Paul did in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I want to be clear, this passage is not a prohibition or ultimatum against believers having any contact or friendships with those in the world. But it is a clear disavowment of the belief or the idea that a person can prize, they can prioritize they can pursue the ways of the world and maintain fidelity to God. That is what it's saying. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it clarifies and reinforces this same point where the apostle there says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Definitive statement. I won't take the time to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Paul is contrasting those who have a carnal mind to those who are spiritually minded. In that passage, he points out this same spiritual truth. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Despite best intentions, despite noble desires, despite diligent effort, it is simply not possible to live a lifestyle that's governed by the flesh and to be pleasing to God. It's not necessarily that every thought and action of our worldly friends is the product of some overtly sinister or nefarious scheme to combat or undermine Christianity. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is that every thought and action is the product of a carnal mind. That is one that is trained and ruled by a worldly system. It is one that is not and cannot be under subjection to the Lord. This is simply the reality for those that are outside Christ. And again, I I don't say this to be disparaging I don't say this to be dismissive, I don't say this to mean that we should not go out and find the diamonds in the rough. This isn't to stoke feelings of self-righteousness, God forbid. But I say this is a matter of protection. To honor the boundaries of truth that God established and in which safety is found. There is often far more at play spiritually than what meets the eye than what can superficially appear to be common ground, even safe ground, on which we ought to agree and unite with our fellow man. We're not talking about differences of opinion, or perspective, or preference, we're talking about a difference of origin, we're talking about a difference of purpose, we're talking about a difference of ownership. While I don't question or doubt the sincerity of many of our family and friends in this world, whether they realize it or not, they lie under the sway of the wicked one. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. They have been taken captive to do His will. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 26. Those who have a carnal mind and walk according to the flesh are being led by His authority, whether they believe that or not whether they know that or not. They are carrying out his agenda. And this can happen to the most sincere and well-intentioned among us if we fall into the same earthly mindset. Even Peter unwittingly became a tool for Satan to place a stumbling block before Christ. You probably remember this in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has begun to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes. He's going to be killed and he's going to be raised the third day. And Peter takes the Lord aside in verse 22 and he begins to rebuke him and say, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. On the surface, Peter's words and actions appear to be the epitome of what you would want in a friend. Someone that's got my back. Someone that's fiercely loyal and protective of me. Someone that's looking out for my best interests. Someone that's not going to stand idly by and sit and watch someone that they care about be mistreated. This is undoubtedly the type of much-needed friendship and support that Peter himself thought that he was providing the Lord when he said those words. And so it must have been quite a shock to hear Christ's seemingly harsh response in verse 23 when he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It's always struck me how jarring... And direct Christ's responses here. He doesn't beat around the bush. He looks right through Peter's good intentions and his sentiments, and he immediately identifies both the danger and the origins of that danger. The ultimate source. Peter's flusty mindset, one that was fixated on the temporal things of this world had presented a grave danger to everyone involved. An offense, an attempt to hinder the Savior's obedience to the Father's mission. This can happen, and this does happen, all the time today. All the time. We must be aware And watchful of these same potential dangers both in ourselves and in our friendships. It may just be that what appears to be an innocuous, an innocent, even a valuable friendship could become Satan's opportunity to masquerade as that angel of light through his unsuspecting serpents. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. About where that comes from. That's why the wise preacher says in Proverbs chapter twelve, verse twenty six, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. We are simply fooling ourselves if we think that we can remain immersed in a spiritually caustic environment and maintain our integrity. To stay pure, uncompromised, and useful. I will point out the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, because I believe that is my topic. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Eventually, something, if we immerse ourselves in those environments, something is going to have to give. It's either going to be our integrity or it's going to be that relationship. Eventually, if we're living a life of obedience to God and emulating our Lord, our path will diverge from those of our friends in the world. Our priorities will not align. Our words and example will cause conflict and convict those in the world that's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. John chapter 3, verse 20 tells us why the world hates us. And the light. Because their deeds are exposed by it. They hate it. They put the mask on to keep the light from penetrating and exposing who they are. Christ Himself acknowledges this reality in John chapter 17, verse 14, when He says, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be hated. I don't like to be mocked. I don't like to be ridiculed. I don't like to be left out. I don't like to be rejected or ostracized. And so the temptation is to avoid these unpleasant and uncomfortable experiences by blending in, by putting on the mask, by disguising our true identity as children of God. It's been several years ago now, but I can still remember a lesson that that Rick Sparks gave regarding mankind's chameleon-like characteristics. In that lesson, he pointed out that just as a chameleon that feels threatened will change its color to blend into its surroundings and backdrop, man will often change his appearance and behavior based on present company. Haven't we all been there? Haven't we all been there? Much like a chameleon has the ability to move its eyes independently from one another and focus on two different objects at once, two different priorities at once, mankind often suffers from this same divided interest and double vision, competition for his attention and his affection. These things may be useful and necessary traits for small and vulnerable and otherwise defenseless reptiles, but they have no place in the life of a Christian. Unfortunately, as much as we'd like to all believe that we are immune to such pressures and influences, the reality is we are all susceptible to them. We've all done it. We've been picking on Peter a lot this morning, but in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we find that even Peter and Barnabas were infected by this contagious hypocritical behavior, acting and associating differently depending on who was around, which crowd they were running with at the time. The same man that had stood boldly in the face of direct threats in opposition of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and proclaimed that we ought to obey God rather than men was now shrinking back from the straightforward truth of the gospel and playing the hypocrite to gain the favor and approval of men that I am sure he would have called his friends. This is precisely the deceptive danger that we're talking about this morning and that we so easily find ourselves falling into the hypocrisy and insincerity. In fact, the Greek word for hypocrite is derived from a term meaning an actor, literally one who wears a mask, something that can be put on and taken off when it seems expedient. When our words and when our actions are predicated on assuaging the sensibilities and the sensitivities of our present company rather than the truth, the eternal and incorruptible Word of God, we will constantly be changing masks. We will constantly be changing course, be changing direction, be changing opinion. We will be unstable in our ways, tossed to and fro like a ship in constant peril, unmoored, adrift, lost, and without hope or direction. That is exactly the pit reality for those that put on the masks. So, if the solution to avoiding such dangers is not to excuse or exclude ourselves from all contact and interaction with the world, how do we protect ourselves? How do we avoid becoming part of the world? Well, I believe a good place to start would be a passage we've already heard this morning. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, I beseech you, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That Greek word translated transform in verse 2 is where we get our English word metamorphosis from. This transformation... Has in view here a far more involved, a far more encompassing, a far more powerful change than a mere outward change of appearance or behavior, as an actor would change his costume, depending on what part he's playing. This is a permanent change of nature, of character, of being. The creature that emerges from this transformation or metamorphosis is nothing like the one that goes into it. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul describes his own change in the following terms. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, which I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul considered himself to have experienced nothing short of a brutal, effective, and decisive execution. Those aren't terms we like to think about, but that's how he thought about his transformation. No longer the same person, no longer attracted to and responsive to the same worldly stimulants, no longer belonging to the same master, no longer longer having the same goals or aspirations. When we put on this new man, when we put on Christ, as it says in Romans chapter 13, and verse 14, to make no provisions of the flesh, we are not putting on errors. We are not putting on performances. We are not putting on spiritual masks to make us look like what we, want, what we think others expect or want us to be. We are making a sincere and a solemn commitment to change forever. Nothing short of a serious and solemn commitment to change forever and to fight forever for our Lord. What we've committed to when we come to Him is we've committed to a campaign of conquest not of the people around us, like Israel, not of our neighbors, not of our friends. We have made a commitment of conquest of ourselves. And while it's true that the victory is ultimately accomplished by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and while His gracious provisions are what do equip us and empower us for all that we need in this difficult task, it still requires nothing short of complete and undivided and unwavering dedication and commitment. In 1519, a Spanish conquistador by the name of Hernan Cortes landed on the shores of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico with 11 ships and about 500 soldiers. Cortes and his men had one mission and that was to plunder the fabled gold and the riches of the Aztec empire for both king and country. The only problem that Cortez faced was that in order to successfully complete this ambitious campaign, he knew that he was first going to have to convince his men to not only make an arduous and perilous trek over untamed and rugged mountainous terrain, but the reward for doing so was gonna be an opportunity to face and battle a fierce and brutal and well-entrenched army one that had been the superpower of the region for over 600 years, one that was well acquainted with the the terrain and the warfare, one that he was even told by by lore was ruled by supernatural beings. Sensing some growing trepidation and doubts and even some seeds of mutiny in his men in the face of such long odds, Cortez, the legend is that Cortez rallies his troops on the beach and gave one simple command burn the ships. Burn the ships. He knew that to have any hope of success and victory was going to need his men's full attention, his full focus, their full devotion to the cause. There could be no option for retreat, to turn back, or to abandon the mission. Cortez's bold tactics paid off. And as they say, the rest is history. They completed their journey they defeated their enemy, and they claimed the treasure. It's said that when Cortez reflect, reflected later in his life on seeing, getting that first vision of that city as he stood on the mountaintop, he wrote that it was the most beautiful city in the world, unlike any that he had ever seen. Brethren, we're headed to an unspeakably beautiful city, unlike any we have ever seen. Contrary to Cortez, who is searching for physical gold and treasure, we are walking in the faithful steps of Abraham Abraham, who desired a heavenly country, a city prepared and ruled by God. And if we expect to get there, we too are going to have to give it our full, undivided devotion. We're going to have to burn the ships. Not burn the bridges. We're going to have to burn the ships. If the world is passing away, it is dying, it is decaying, it is wasting away, it is destined for destruction, and we have to understand that there is no safe fallback position. There's only one way forward, and that is through Jesus Christ. But the way is not going to be easy, it's narrow, it's difficult. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Paul chooses to describe his transformation from the old corrupt man to the new spiritual man in the terms that he did as a crucifixion. Much like a crucifixion was exhausting and gruesome and excruciating experience, the reality is that our sanctification process is often going to be uncomfortable. It's often going to be unpleasant. It may even cost us dearly in terms of what we must give up in this world. We might have to forfeit social status and prestige and respect and approval. We might have to forego earthly fame and fortune. We may even have to give up some friendships along the way. These things may change forever because we should change forever. Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Paul certainly experienced his fair share of this in his life. Going from a man that was well, well uh, liked. He was elite, an up-and-comer in the Jewish community. He was well educated. He was well connected. He was well respected. He was probably even well compensated as a young man. But he became a man that was despised by many of his countrymen, many of his former companions. He was literally hunted from city to city, at times impoverished and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Yet through it all, Paul didn't see himself as a victim, but as more than a conqueror. And that's why he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ." Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. In this life, we aren't always going to be surrounded by an encouraging crowd of peers and friends cheering us on, patting us on the back encouraging us along in our pilgrimage but we always will be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and faithful examples that we can and we should look to as we travel on examples like daniel who purposed in his heart not to be defiled being in a foreign and pagan land those like moses who chose to suffer the affliction with the people of god rather than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin and esteeming the reproaches of christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And we should ultimately keep our eyes trained on Christ who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross and hostility from sinners. Jesus Christ didn't come down into the flesh and live among men in order to become like them. He so loved the world that He died for it. He died for it. He was crucified for it. We too must love our family and our friends in the world enough not to become like them, but to die. To have the wisdom and the courage with God's help to put off the old man, our former conduct, and trust that the Lord is going to take care of the rest. To crucify the old man of sin, to put off the works of flesh, and to put on the new man created in Christ Jesus. We have to become like him so that we can bring others to him. We must love them enough to tell them the truth and love and to correct them meekly and gentleness. And friends, if you are outside of Jesus Christ this morning, I love you enough to tell you that you're in danger. You're in danger. You are dead in your trespasses. You are ensnared by the devil, taken captive to do his will. And no matter how well you think you're wearing that mask, God sees right through it. But God loved us, you and me. He loved the world enough that he sent his son to die for it, to forgive us, to redeem us, to justify us, and to transform us and to glorify us. That's what the hope is, that we are going to be one day just as he is now, having gone through that process himself. If you have not obeyed Christ's invitation to come to him, obey him, and to start that process, please come forward and tell us how we can help you in that as we stand and sing.